y'all, and welcome back to Folksy. What a whirlwind of a winter season it has been here in my woodland domain. Myself and the creatures of the night are so excited to be back after our little month-long hiatus. We are healthy and bundled up as we sit around the campfire tonight and are fully prepared to welcome our next amazing guest, who has traversed her way all the way through the dark like so much daring adventurer. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Amy Chase to Folksy. Hi, Hi Amy. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. Lovely place you've got here. Oh, yes. Nice and cozy, at least as of this moment. Uh, but for y'all who might not be familiar, Amy is an amazing comic book and prose writer uh, who works, uh, or her works include such awesome pieces as the Archie Comics Horror Series. She has written Welcome to Riverdale and Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors. And I believe as of April 2024, IDW is also releasing their new D&D &D Ravenloft comic, which you have also co-written, yes? Yes, I got to co-write that with one of my favorite people, uh, who is also a total like folk horror um, hag aficionado, Casey Gilly. And so we uh, that one was a free license to just go crazy in the domains of dread um, for Dungeons and Dragons. So that has been an absolute treat as well. Oh my goodness. This is just, this is so much fun. And I love this as like a combo for you because you're such like a nice, happy person. And then to see you writing these kind of horror pieces is just so much fun. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, it's such a treat. Um, but today we're actually talking about a film that you wrote your, well, you wrote the uh, your college thesis on the book this film is based on. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I'm so excited that Amy is here because today we are discussing <laughs> uh, the cul-de-sac folk horror film, The Stepford Wives released in 1975 and based on the book by Ira Levin. Oh. Yeah, I mean, anything that has as much uh, cultural staying power as to become just a term, you know, when someone, when you just think of like, oh, she's a total Stepford wife or just having that, you know, cultural clout of creating an entire categorization of of person or individual that is, you know, very uncanny in that way. I think it's it's definitely worth a look at like what, what that really means. Like, what is a Stepford wife? I love that. I had never actually thought about it in that kind of like colloquialistic term. Yeah, that's so cool. It really does have this kind of staying power in a way that's very much so embedded into the way that like we as Americans see a very certain type of past life. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Oh man, this is going <laughs> to be great. Well, before we begin, would you be so kind as to give an offering to my campfire? Of course. Excellent. Well, uh, let's see here. The question I have for you today is sacrifice. What is a piece of technology that scares you, like a physical item of technology? Oh, man. A physical piece of technology. Well, oh, God, there's so many different types of technology even to to pick from because part of one of my my brain went to, oh, you know, those deli slicers, like those are scary. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think in the more traditional tech vein, uh, I'm kind of scared of the idea of a self-driving car. They don't have a sense of morality. And I think that comes into a lot of the discussion again with um, what we'll see in the film and the novel. But I think that's one of those things where, you know, sci-fi stories imagined flying cars, like, oh, that would be so nice to get off the road and avoid traffic. But the idea of having a car do it for you, and then we get the trolley problem, and it's, you know, cars don't have that sense of morality, so you can only program for so many outcomes, I think. I so love that. No, you're you're entirely correct. That has been one of, like, the tenets of, of robotics, just kind of in general. I think a lot of people think of the Turing test for this idea of, like, can we teach it? uh you know to trick us into thinking that it's a robot yeah obviously we mm -hmm. can do that it's can we teach it to to care that it's a robot yeah and <laughs> um, then teaching ourselves to believe that what it tells us is autonomous and you know the correct or was made with any sort of intelligence behind it oh yeah no there's been so many i mean obviously when we think of like robotics films ex machina always comes up but i always like to think of morgan because that's the debate that they're mm -hmm. fighting the entire time it's oh yeah no she totally tricked them into thinking who you know that that she's on their side but in reality can she even conceptualize this um yeah and funny you should mention ex machina that was also i mean my my senior thesis in college um, which may or may not still be online somewhere tied to the UC, uh, uc santa barbara website which 
ironically, has probably been incorporated into some smart learning models. Um, but Ex Machina, Stepford Wives, a um, couple comic books were in there, like The Vision. Um, so getting some of the Marvel stuff in there. But there was, I did a whole smorgasbord of uh, feminine cyborgs in sci-fi. And it just such a great like i love that uh, going back to the ex machina one as well like can we be programmed to believe what it's telling us absolutely because there really is a difference when we look at uh, uh the feminine presenting robots versus the masculine presenting robots like it's really yep. crazy it, it brings to mind one line and i'm sure i don't want to jump ahead but in the film when one of the gentlemen says well wouldn't you do this to a man if you could that right. idea again with the female and male presenting and the context of of what that power dynamic is used for. But I I really appreciate the that there's a character in there who believes, well, if you had the power to do it, women would turn around and do this to men as well. Oh, and I cannot disagree. That's the uh that's the fun of it all. Well, for those of you who may not have seen uh the Stepford Wives, uh here's a quick little synopsis. Wife, mother, and aspiring photographer Joanna Eberhardt moves with her husband Walter and two children from the big city life in New York to the quiet suburb of Stepford, Connecticut. Despite its outward perfection, something is amiss about the women of Stepford. Uh, in a town of mysterious feminine maladies, a gaslighting local men's club uh, seems to be at the center of it all. As her friends begin to change before her very eyes, Joanna's mounting paranoia drives her to uncover a sinister truth behind the unwavering subservience of the Stepford wives. The film stars Catherine Ross, Pauline Apprentice, Peter Masterson, and Patrick O'Neill. It was directed by Brian Forbes, and the screenplay was written by William Goldman as an adaptation of Ira Levin's original novel of the same title. At this point, if you have not watched the 1975 Stepford Wives film, now is the time to turn back and do so. But if you're feeling well-oiled and that thing you call a heart is beeping with anticipation, let's take a step closer to the fire. <laughs> well, and I will say, I uh, to refresh myself on this one, for because mm -hmm. my, th my thesis was written quite a ways uh, ago, but uh, to refresh myself, this was available for free on Tubi. Um, so I was able to watch it on Tubi. So if anyone's yes. interested, you can just hop right off and, and check that out and then come back to our discussion. This is one of those films where I cannot wait till we get like a really solid Blu-ray release because it's mm. just hard to get a hold of right now for some reason. Yeah. But yeah. I too watched it on Tubi. So it was great to know that they at least had the option, um, which is absolutely wonderful. And, you know, hilariously enough, I think a lot of people, despite this kind of, uh, like you had mentioned, this you know, really woven fabric into American pop culture. I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this particular version of the film or of the story. Yeah, I, yeah, I think especially because it's a little older and it was, you know, there is a more recent adaptation that I think skews even further from the traditional narrative and adds its own kind of, you know, takes on it. Uh, what, the 2004, 2002? Um, Something like that, yeah. It's funny because um, I was thinking 2006, so it's just one of those even 2000 numbers. Um, but that also, I think, speaks to an issue that's not addressed in this story, but I think on the technological whole, as we are advancing and we are seeing these things, the mm -hmm. preservation of physical media is really important. Um, you know, when when a thing is relegated only to streaming, a streaming service can decide if you don't own it anymore and they can yeah. take it away and then you just don't have access to it. Yeah, it's really, really wild. It's, you know, in and in this digital age where there is both too much television and film and yet not enough because you really can't pick and choose if you want to research something. It really is kind of curated at you in that way. Um, yeah. Well, before we dig in, let's talk a little bit about this kind of new you know, and we're talking as we're talking about like the evolution of technology and all these kind of things. And, you know, as we remake things, as we, you know, move forward with stories, let's talk a little bit about cul-de-sac folk horror. Um, we've talked a little bit about films that are evolved from the original notions of folk horror. Uh, for those who might want a little refresher, those were the themes of like a rural setting, isolation, themes of superstition, folk religion, paganism, and the dark aspects of nature. So when we look at the evolution of the genre, I like to look at two base notions within these original motifs. Occultism and hauntology are huge focal points on how we look at the evolution of folk horror because they encapsulate the basic tenets while allowing some space for, for growth. 
It could be argued that this is how the original British folk horror surge began as a result of post-World War II trauma mixed with the resurgent interest in the occult through the music of the 60s and 70s, including such artists as Donovan, The Beatles, way too many others to count because boy howdy is that a separate episode um uh, but occultism is no longer just christian versus pagan here in what is now 2024 hey 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 <laughs> um wow we, yeah right uh but Happy we all you know jeez christ yeah that's <laughs> another year down um, but we all know people here in 2024 who worship at the altar of Jeff Bezos's Amazon.com or Elon Musk. Whole communities can become haunted by the tragedy woven into their own history, like we see with a lot of Black folk horror coming out of the American experience of slavery, racism, and police brutality. Um, we've actually talked on this podcast about two films that very much so encompass these tenets. In the Chernobyl Diaries, there's a community haunted by a horrifying event of the past that has decimated a whole city to rubble, allowing its government to go in and manipulate its people further under the guise of a science fictional legend. In the menu, an occultist community based around the culinary profession is purged in a sacred temple space by its highest authority for not keeping the faith to his standards. By keeping these elements in mind, our brains can kind of become a bit more malleable from our predetermined expectations of religious weirdos dancing naked in a field, <laughs> political capitalism, technology, uh, you know, these are all elements that have created a different landscape for folk horror. The world is constantly moving forward, ergo our folklore is as well. So with cul-de-sac folk horror, it's a very natural evolution of the genre, taking your quaint village in the middle of nowhere with a secret and replacing it with a quaint suburb with a secret. <laughs> uh, the cul-de-sac <laughs> itself presents the notion of comfort and safety. So it's comfortable and it's so comfortable and safe that it can become mundane. Author Ira Levinson's The Stepford Wives was released in 1972 and labeled as a satirical feminist horror story. Pre-Stepford, he was lauded for having the best-selling book of the 1960s, Rosemary's Baby, selling over 4 million copies. Post-Stepford, he would write The Boys from Brazil. Occultism and hauntology are seeped into the pages of all three of these stories, from the biblical devil living amongst your neighbors to a political devil whose evil has left a scar throughout the entire world and may be born again, and of course, Stepford. There's also some interesting things like if you look pretty much as the Unholy Trinity was being released in theaters, so like Witchfinder General in uh, uh, 68, Wicker Man in 73, Blood on Satan's Claw in 71, Levin's is kind of neck and neck in releasing these American horror novels that were very quickly being adapted to film. Um, and I kind of think that his foundation is the great example of how American folk horror cinema would begin to be built as a result of this. So Cul-de-sac folk horror is, is really, really interesting and uniquely American in that weird kind of way. And Stepford, like you said, Amy, is what really kind of starts it all. You know, mm -hmm. and quaint and quiet nuclear family town with a dark underbelly, uh, you know, yeah. we've really lapped up. You know, you even mentioned before... Um, you know, you incorporated comic books like Vision. You know, since the, the 80s and 90s in film and television, we've had what we've had, Pleasantville, The Burbs, Twin Peaks, uh, so many ex uh, episodes of The X-Files. There's a robot in Buffy. There's a robot in Sunnydale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that, but you're 100% correct. And That's yeah, of course. One of my I'm favorite things to try to explain to people about the show where I'm like, oh, it's an amazing show. You know, she fights vampires. It's great. You get to season five and there's a couple of sex robots. And one of them was supposed to be played by Britney Spears. And then they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's sci-fi in it, too. I did not know it was supposed to be played by Britney Spears. That's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the one that she meets before Spike commissions the Buffy one. I think her name yeah. is April. Um, when she like sits there with the robot as it like slowly powers down. Yeah, that was supposed to be uh, Britney Spears. That's so wild. I don't know why, but my brain is just flashing to Paris Hilton and Supernatural now. What a start to a start <laughs> to a start. <laughs> but that's just it. The way that we kind of build on all of these, these again, this kind of like dark American small town underbelly, you know, and of course this culminated in the 2017, uh, the 2017 teen television drama 
of Riverdale, <laughs> which obviously <laughs> you're well versed in. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I that was one of those things where coming into Archie Horror, I was like, in a way, it's both reassuring and disappointing that I will never create anything as weird as that show. But it's like it also gave me an incredible freedom and free license to just kind of be like, oh yeah, Pop the Diner owner is actually secretly a Satanist. Like that's that's totally normal and not anywhere crazy enough for like what we actually saw on Riverdale or um welcome to Riverdale itself I, I was a combination of Stepford and Pleasantville uh in my pitch but we took a more um a more traditionally supernatural approach aligning with Archie's history with Greendale and the witches there uh, as opposed to technology well I love that because you're tackling what I believe something like 85 years worth of material uh, that is very much so traditionally set in in a, in a very different time period in like the 40s and the 50s. So yes. what you have been able to do is, for starters, don't sell yourself short. You did some fun batshit stuff that I enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> you continue to do fun batshit stuff with these characters that I enjoy. But But yeah, what is it like to bring that into a modern horror realm? when you have that much to work with oh my goodness it's so much fun and it is also so difficult because you know everybody's first instinct i think is to want to use the core gang of characters um when you get into riverdale writing you're like i, I obviously i have to write something jughead and i have to do archie and we did that first pops chocolate shop without jughead in it at all uh which i think is a testament to the strength of the amount of characters and storytelling options that you have that you could do a food-centric diner horror that doesn't involve riverdale's greatest foodie um that's wild and so yeah. <laughs> and that was fun and and you always have to i think at the heart of it they they are so great about um really letting people like stretch the limits of the creativity of the Archie license while you stay true to the characters in some form. And so for Pops, I was, you know, dead set on the fact that this man is a small business owner who day in and day out is catering to a teenage clientele who I'm sure don't have a ton of money. I don't know what, you know, the, the allowance economy is like in Riverdale, but I just wanted to take that from the perspective of a small business owner who maybe was fed up with enough teens dining and dashing on him. Um, and we had so many other kind of, uh, we, you know, Jordan Morris and Leona Kangas did the, the, you know, very expected, but they did it in a totally unique way, Soylent Teen, where obviously Pop is also serving his clientele as as the menu. It's amazing. Um, it's like a deranged Scooby-Doo villain. <laughs> it's just, it's so great. And and on that note, I'm so excited that this March we get to revisit. We're doing a prequel. Uh, so kind of showing how he got to the point where he was pushed over the edge uh, by Riverdale. And so we are really excited about that. And that one's, that one's Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors Fresh Meat. Um, oh, so that's been amazing. a fun uh, challenge to be working on right now. Oh, oh I can't wait. That's, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm tingly all over with anticipation. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, oh no, it's all good. I, I just, and I don't want to get too far away from Welcome to Riverdale, but again, just that idea, I almost took it, um, as a as a meta commentary also on uh the way that you know archie has has changed over the years you know we've had archie versus punisher archie versus predator so it's not always stuck in time with this wholesome you know retro who's he going to date this week kind of conundrum and so yeah. that for that book i really also wanted to encourage people to look at it from a meta perspective of uh take the weird with with the the wholesome because if you try to pigeonhole it too much in a time period where, you know, it, do it doesn't exist in the modern context anymore. And it's very much the rosy tinted uh, glasses there. Uh, you're losing out on a lot of stuff and you're taking away, you know, it, it, the autonomy, I think was another important part of that because without spoiling too much about that story, the mayor is so obsessed with optics that he's willing to make some back-end bargains to keep the populace subservient. And so again, that involves a lot of the retro Americana forcing people to lose their bad sides and only become half of themselves uh, and only, you know, the good part of themselves, which is not sustainable because then you've got a pile of bad stuff sitting somewhere else hidden away and waiting to kind of explode out. Amazing. Now, I, I feel like you've 
prop, I mean, just from listening to you speak with such passion about the way that you kind of handle your your writing and how you go about crafting these stories. I mean, I kind of mentioned before that the reason why I love the Stepford Wives film is because in my opinion, it was kind of this first big swing at American folk horror cinema, very much so in that vein of mm -hmm. Americana. Uh, you obviously have a very deep-seated love of this story. What, what drew you originally to the Stepford Wives? I think if funny enough, you know, you, you mentioned how culturally prevalent the idea of something being Stepford is mm -hmm. when I was in college, I don't think I had, I hadn't read it. I had just kind of heard that held up as an example of, you know, feminism, cyborg, uh, and, and like the satire element to it. And so when I was, when I was picking media for my thesis, I had originally had a much, much bigger project that I had presented my junior year. And it was supposed to be kind of like the proof of concept of what would become your thesis. Mm. And I had this massive umbrella of different types of women in sci-fi and horror. And it was categorized as, you know, uh, kind, kind of some of the cardinal archetypes. I couldn't get them all, but there was the cyborg, there was the alien or like completely off planet uh, organism. Mm -hmm. And then there was the something is wrong with this woman. Usually it's like a parasite or something that has taken over her, but it's not inorganic. It's it's some blending. So like I was thinking of like Gozer from uh, Ghostbusters and stuff oh. where you like, you've got the possession or the um, supernatural element that changes this woman into, you know, some usually some sort of a sex kitten for the male protagonist. Um, <laughs> but when push came to shove, I had to, I had to dial it down and I thought, I, you know, I would have happily jumped on any of those uh, kind of archetypes, but I really wanted to dig into uh, the cyborg because I was also a really big fan of Blade Runner and I had never read um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. And so I really wanted to give myself the opportunity to go into these, you know, gargantuan works of science fiction and really take a look at how they treat women because we know about the the action badasses and uh you know the the terminator situation and like the hell nine thousands but i really wanted to go okay well what like what makes stepford stepford um and there was there, i mean there was so much delightful stuff even i i was referencing um a lot of betty frieden's work the feminine mystique because that's actually part of the novel um and so it was interesting to see you know those satirical elements and and watching the commentary of the time period back then um and and that's i just wanted to see how it had such you know staying power um to to still be known today even if people haven't ever engaged with the material itself that's really interesting because i had not actually like sat down and watched this film in probably a good 10 years which i feel very silly <laughs> saying now but kind of watching it in a post me too movement mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of era has really really you know we we use the term gaslighting a lot now probably it was what it was like the webster dictionary word of the year last year or something like that yeah um, i think so yeah, but this is a, a book that very much so deals in the dissection, <laughs> uh, or, or this is a story, I should say. The film very much likes to deal in kind of the way that things are progressed in that very kind of like wicker man kind of way. Gaslighting and folk horror go hand in hand because the idea is that a community is trying to trick you into a wicker man. <laughs> That's like 101. Hey, man, you want to you wanna come to our weird island and eat our apples? Oh, man, you better stick around for three days. We don't know who this gal is. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Ooh. Oops, Wicker Man, which is a horrible synopsis of that film. But, you know, I feel like I've watched it now just from that. Just from that. Oh, yeah. No. Fun fact. Original. No bees. What's very, very interesting about especially the beginning of this film is that they really do. It, it really does come off like a horror movie. I know it oftentimes kind of gets thrown into a thriller space. Um, but, you know, even the satire, you know, just kind of feels more horrific nowadays. Yeah, especially those cultural touchstones that bring it back to not just being some made up, uh, even though it is a fictional, you know, suburb, it's it's in our world and it could exist just down the road. And those cultural touchstones, and I'm sure we'll talk about them a little more, but I mean, the idea of uh, the uh, Dale Dizcoba being a former Disney person and, um, you know, they've got the Environmental Protection Agency and all of these different uh, actual pieces of our capitalist and, and overall countrywide landscape. Um, and now seeing the con like the, the Disney thing takes on a whole new context uh, nowadays. Disney. I mean, <laughs> going from, you know, 
an innocuous 1970s reference of a Disney engineer to what is a Disney engineer doing right now in, in 2024? And what is Disney as a corporation doing? Um, seeing that in the context of like, you know, I think I think a lot of people see writers who do sci-fi horror speculative fiction and they go, oh, my God, how did they ever guess that would be the case? And it's not guessing. It's taking a look at very obvious context clues and taking them to their furthest conclusions. But it's it's not like this idea was conjured out of nowhere. Oh, 100%. And again, this is a, a, a episode talking about evolution. When we look at the way that we kind of portray those animatronics nowadays, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes we, we've just had two very popular films that came out in regards to placing them with children and the horror that comes from that. We've had uh, Five Nights at Freddy's based on the video game mm-hmm. and then uh, Megan. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but again, the idea of of these men building toys, I think, is is very interesting. And again, a Disney Imagineer building building you specifically a toy, your perfect toy with big black eyes and huge boobs. <laughs> well, and then the the um, the context of consent is a it's hugely present throughout the novel, especially. And actually, mm-hmm. the the movie removes one of my favorite. And I, God, it sounds creepy to say favorite because when I explain the scene, you'll be like, "Why is that your favorite?" Um, this is a safe space. It was one of my favorite moments for contextualizing the the idea of consent. Um, it's it's the it's when Walter first comes home from the men's association. Joanna's asleep, and in the movie we see him kind of drinking by the fire and sitting there, and it's and it's very appropriately creepy as he's like, "Yeah, no, it was a great time. Like nothing nothing went weird." But in the book, he gets into bed, and Joanna kind of wakes up, and then the bed starts shaking, and she looks over and she says, "Walter, are you?" masturbating and he's like well you know i didn't want to i didn't want to wake you and she's like well if you if you really wanted to you could have asked me and then it she goes on to say that he goes okay well if you're in the mood let's do it and she remarks casually that it was some of the best sex she's had in a while but the idea of the consent thing comes and i think that's a, a great moment for contextualizing that like he didn't want the potential of being rejected by his wife in the middle of the night and so he's you know sitting there pleasuring himself. And, and she's like, well, you, you could have asked me, you, d- you don't know, you did you chose not to ask me. Um, and that, that always stands out to me that that wasn't necessarily, I understand why it wasn't necessarily in there, but um, no, I, I love this though. A very important because, scene. Again, it, it creates um, it creates such a great extra layer. This is why it's always worth reading the book and seeing the movie Kids at Home. But it does create, you know, this really kind of like beautiful moment, uh, uh, microscope moment because traditionalized masculinity. I mentioned before, you know, with Ira Levin's stuff, we've got you know Rosemary's Baby, where again the biblical devil is is being you know conjured by your community, your neighbors, and you're trapped inside of a building with them. And then you've got the boys from Brazil. Uh, where again, it's a it's a political devil. In this case, you know, traditionalized masculinity really is kind of the devil you can, you know hiding out in your home. Um, mm-hmm. And that traditionalized masculinity, I think sometimes when we think about it, we think of it as just um, domestic violence. I think that that's kind of always like when people kind of like step there, it's always like, oh, this is where we're going for us. We're going to go for alcoholism. We're going to go for domestic violence. The microscopes that they put throughout this film, my personal favorite moment is right actually at the beginning when the young grocery boy, after the car accident, he doesn't ask if anyone is okay. He doesn't want, you know, to, to, you know, help anyone. He just wants to turn around to the crowd and say, this wasn't my fault. This wasn't my fault. You you all saw, right? This wasn't my fault. And you can see these little moments of how the the devil in this film, for for lack of a better way of putting it, um, is really just the things that men don't talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's the things that they don't want to express because you know it might be difficult, or you know maybe they just want something done a certain way and they want it done now. It's very mm-hmm. much so we're playing in a child's sandbox in Stepford. And also a sandbox where apparently sex at night just doesn't exist. It's either noon or <laughs> Yeah. Well, and yeah, sometimes you walk in on your neighbors doing it. But um, yeah, oh I mean, gosh. I think also the context of whether or not the audience understands at that point. And, and I think it's interesting. A modern audience, I think, will implicitly understand that woman is probably a robot, the one who just got hit by the car. But whether or not there's the understanding of like, that's not a real person he hit. And so he's going to blame the programming versus he's just not going to accept culpability for, you know, hurting another human. Yeah. Um, I think there's an interesting layer of does does he personify the woman enough 
to consider that, you know, she is a person I just hurt, or it is the fault of the object that it was not functioning as intended. Absolutely. And then when you watch as the object is carried away, the little moments uh, of women gaslighting themselves. You know, one of the things that I think this film balances really, really nicely is showing um, very specific kind of like laser beam points on women's mental health at the time. I actually, there's a therapist in this movie. I had completely forgotten this. The therapist in this movie is actually a nice therapist. And I think I can count on one hand the amount of modern movies that have a therapist that isn't trying to murder, steal your life away. And so seeing, you know, even just a woman going to therapy and being honest in therapy, you know, because she, it doesn't matter if she's afraid she's going to sound crazy. She just needs to get it out. There's mm -hmm. little moments like this that just, again, I can't, I can't remember when I've seen them reflected in modern cinema. We've been kind of changing around our language when it comes time for talking about, uh, you know, men, women, and, and robots within mm -hmm. all of this. I know that AI is a big thing with, with you in context to this film, you know, obviously in the context mm -hmm. of, of your original thesis. How do you feel about the way that, uh, that robotics is portrayed in this film? I think this is really uh, an interesting take because, again, if you dial it into the context of these are Disney animatronics, essentially, whether or not they outright say that, the technology was very different at a time where Disney animatronics were very limited in their capacity. I mean, I'm even thinking of when they switched over the Pirates of the Caribbean ride to have the more lifelike Jack Sparrow. Mm -hmm. Like to a certain point, they are just very fancy dolls. But now in this context, the idea that, you know, someone with that capacity could uh, create something that is walking, talking, a, a pretty much perfect simulation of a woman. Um, in the film, I think it's really interesting, you know, they have her passively giving them parts of, of, of herself. They have her recording her voice. And I love the moment where she asks Bobby, and now I can't remember what word she asks her, but she asks her like a, you know, an SAT yeah, vocabulary word. And she's like, that wasn't in the recording. That wasn't one of the words they had us learn or, or give over to the bot. Um, and, you know, they're they're capturing her image via Ike Mazard's beautiful drawings. And I, I remember in the book, and I don't think she says it in the film, but in the book she says, oh, like, everybody would kill to be an Ike Mazard girl. And that basically means, like, they would love to be the subject of one of his art pieces. You know, everybody wants to be a Mazard girl. And so oh, she's yeah. very flattered by this, this artwork. It's an honor so, to be immortalized by him. And in the context now also of modern AI, it's so fascinating because, you know, people kind of think anything that's on the internet is open domain. And I'm like, that's not how that works, honey. And then we had everybody speaking of Disney go absolutely ham with the Steamboat Willie uh, public domain date. Um, Ooh, and, and we're yeah. seeing them churn out, you know, oh, we're going to make a, we're going to make a schlocky horror film just because this guy's in the open domain now. Um, but this idea that if you exist in the world, you parts of you are up for grabs even the contentification of like if you're out in public and you you know trip and fall on a banana somebody's got that on their tiktok and you are now content yeah um, and i think i think it takes on such a more damning context where it's very innocuous and very small in this film you know she's sitting there recording words and she's been a drawing and they're and they're taking little parts of her but i think it's it's just the beginning of what has become a very natural evolution of, you know, your data, your livelihood, your likeness will be taken and used by the machine to create a version of you that is not you. And what that. really struck me in this film on the idea of artistry, because we get to see Joanna in her dark room several times and we get to talk about her photography and, and the jobs she may or may not have had to sacrifice for this role. But she is an artist herself. And, you know, a lot of people, I think photography is really interesting because a lot of people like to hold up the straw man argument of, well, people thought painting would, you know, be erased from, from relevance after photography you know, but photos and, and paintings can coexist. So why can't, you know, my AI version of, of like mid journey coexist with traditional artists. And I think, because again, photography is a tool and it is something that, you know, you have to, you have to be able to refine the, the use of that technology, but it's, it's not explicitly replacing uh, anyone or anything. But when Joanna shouts, you know, they're going to make something of me and it'll look like me and it'll sound like me 
but it's not going to be taking pictures. It's not going to be making art. Um, it, that's very much, it's very interesting, you know, again, like in, in the context where, you know, uh, nowadays uh, an AI Joanna could probably make fake photos or, or put in a prompt for something that looks photorealistic. But I love that moment where she's like, whatever they make that is me in, in name and body, uh, it won't be me in that creative spirit. I love that you're coming from this as like as we move forward into the future because you know it, the other context of course of all of this when in regards to kind of like the folkloric aspects of it is when did we really start building robots when did we really start building these automatons and of course this goes all the way back to Pygmalion uh the original Greek yes. story that everyone you know would later see as my fair lady you know you talk about picking apart the minute that you be are, are turned into something is the moment that people can take pieces of you my god um, but the original Pygmalion myth was a sculptor who carved a, a, uh, a woman that he fell in love with and he begged to the gods to, to make her into a real girl. So, you know, from there, even, you know, when we look back at the old kind of like Greek context, we, we've been obsessed with the idea of building these automatons for forever you know, to a point and making them seem so real that we could trick ourselves. Literally, there were old ancient cultures that used to build these giant uh, armored structures that would greet you entering the cities, much like Disneyland. <laughs> and it was always, you know, a huge speculation because they were so large and what they were supposed to be doing, people always assumed, oh, there must be a giant in there which like what another piece of folklore <laughs> to shove into a literal metal suit to say, there's no way that there, that this isn't a person. It's that mm -hmm. lifelike. And so we've been doing this since the dawn, you know, back all the way with Prometheus bringing us fire, you know, all mm -hmm. we wanted to do since the minute that we got that was kind of to build something that we can possess. That is also us. And this comes out in art. This comes out in in uh, uh, the way that we want things to build art for us. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the idea of Joanna getting to use, you know, again, could probably with nowadays kind of AI build these pieces. But what is the intent? Where is the consent? You've used a lot of the great words here already mm -hmm. <laughs> in regards I, to. I think know, about this this whole narrative so much. And I think, again, like, it's just been something that I've loved for so long, but in a new context, it's like, I, I, I even mentioned, you know, my thesis has probably been crawled by ChatGPT. If it exists online, people think it's free use. And it's it's an entire, there's an entire chapter about the way these novels address the creation of art by uh, by artificial intelligence. And, and even, I know it's not what we're talking about, but Blade Runner, um, in the novel, in, in Do Androids Dream, uh, Rick Deckard is listening to an opera tape uh, created by Luba Luft, who is one of the robots who didn't actually make it into the film. She was replaced by the sexy stripper Zora. Um, but Luba Luft is an opera singer, and he even remarks, wow, she sounds so talented. And on this CD, which again is a piece of technology that is removed and, and you know synthesized, he says, on this CD, she almost sounds real, but I know that her voice has been synthesized from all of the previous operatic greats. And so he can't bring himself to consider it art. He considers it a reproduction. You know, and I, I, I think that's so interesting as well with yeah. the, the technology and the, the disembodiment of your art. Absolutely. Well, again, you know, we're talking about taking this very classic kind of robotic story and we're talking about moving it into the, the future space. I love that notion because I feel like with science fiction, science fiction very much so does draw upon the folkloric because, you know, there's got to be something that we are nostalgic for, <laughs> for lack yes. of a better way of putting it. And, and you know, it's interesting that you that you're kind of showing like this, this, you know, here with Blade Runner, this is how we showed this evolution. I always love one of my favorite science fiction folklore films and people fight me on this one all the time, don't care, uh, is the new Matrix movie. Because it's a oh. film, yeah, it built its own folklore, it built its own religious three-part story, and then it became, you know, again, what is the Matrix? We all know the Matrix. We all know, you know, it's, it's like killing a vampire, you know, steak, garlic, you know, cut off its head. Uh, you know, with the Matrix, it's what are we going to get? We're going to get bullet time, we're going to get the green drippy stuff all the way down, you know, we're going to get red pill, you know, if we want to talk a cultural milestone there, Jesus. <laughs> you know, we, we've really built a folklore around kind of how we saw hacking and how we saw, you know, the, the way that, you know, kind of grunge would push this forward. And again, we're downloading into human beings the ability to do literally anything all at once. 
Like that is the point of the matrix is that we stick a guy in some goop and his AI version of himself goes into a machine and he can do anything in there. <laughs> you know what didn't do that it's that idea as effectively as I would have loved it to, but I was like so primed to love it was Dollhouse. <gasps> Dollhouse didn't. Yes. I think, especially in the context where that time period, we weren't really talking about gender um, mm. in really like, or we didn't, I mean, we didn't have enough terminology to accurately discuss the idea of gender when it comes up in that um that show if anyone doesn't know that's a it's a whedon joint but it stars eliza dushku as a woman who is a doll or or an active for this company that allows people to they go in a five-year contract and they have their entire personality removed and put on a disc and stored in a warehouse and in the meantime they can be rented out by people who want to Im uh, imprint them with other personalities or skills um, and sometimes this leads to like gender confusion when like a male imprint gets put into Echo's body. Um, but they but they didn't really talk about that. And I think that's one of the uh, interesting things that comes up with, you know, cyborg feminism and technology and the way humans are using uh, it to change around. But but like you said, with the Matrix and like he can download every skill into his body. I think Dollhouse, while a fun experiment, falls short in what it tries to say about a lot of that stuff. But again, it deals in the themes of the consent, the what parts of you can be taken out and replaced, and like, are we just complex biological programming code? Yeah, or are we just floppy disks? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's what is the part of us that makes us us? And again, it's it, I actually I, I really loved Dollhouse when it came out. <laughs> mm. I agree completely with you. It was a lot of really cool ideas that just kind of. It's very quick and then it got canceled. <laughs> I'm not, um, I'd love to see what they could have done with more time, but also in the retrospective of, of Whedon's, you know, work with women. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't have too much more yes. of that. <laughs> right. no, that makes perfect sense. Well, and again, you know, we're kind of talking about all of these things as we're building all of these things up, as we're making them better. Hilariously enough, a lot of these kind of, especially like feminine or feminized robotics get, uh, um, what's the word that I am, I am looking for. Uh, they, they really are kind of there to create, I mentioned the word nostalgia before, but they really are kind of meant to take steps back. The point for a lot of fembots is either to make them more powerful, killing, you know, machine guns for titties kind of like things, <laughs> or to tame them into being these kind of sex, sex dolls. Um, you know, in the context of the Stepford Wives, film, one of my favorite things is when uh, Joanna asks Bobby what they, what they do up at the men's club. And Bobby just goes, they just watch dirty movies together and reminisce about the good old days. And like, what does that even look, you know, what are the good old days when it comes, is it a girlfriend experience? Is it, you know, what your mom used to, to do to get you, you know, out of bed in the morning to get you to school and that's what you want for work now? Or is it that old girlfriend that used to, you know, put out in a way that just your wife won't do now? You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, and that's code these days. You know, a lot of older generations will be like, oh, I miss the good old days, you know, when people weren't as sensitive or I could be racist without being called on it or I could mm -hmm. be openly sexist and I was rewarded for it. Like, that's, I mean, underlying, that's what that's code for these oh, days yeah. at least. Back to that grocery boy, uh, uh, back when it wasn't my fault. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and I think one, so, you know, we've, we've mentioned words like consent and autonomy and all that stuff. One of the other words that was a, was a heavy driver of my thesis, um, that hasn't come up yet is uncanny. Um, <gasps> and you know, TikTok had its weird little uncanny Valley trend recently where people were trying to, you know, do people are doing like face makeup to be like, Oh, I'm uncanny Valley. Um, but sometimes that's not necessarily a thing that you can like strive to be uncanny. I think some some people are very skilled at that. Um, but oh, these little NPC TikTokers, these things are terrifying to me. But they're huge in the e girl circuit. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's crazy. Yes, yeah. Those are those are a whole other class of I can't even begin to wrap my mind around it. But the origins of that word uh, in German are really important to look at again with the context of the domesticity of the robots. It comes from uh, unheimlich, which means unhomelike or something that is not, you know, of the home and not necessarily explicitly in the domestic context, but what is familiar and safe. And so oh. the literal uncanny valley being, you know, populated by these dolls, uh, it's very much like a, it is something that is made to be 
recreating all the trappings of a domestic and, and familiar and safe experience, but there's just something off about it. Fascinating. That is so cool. I had no idea. I, I love that notion. Thank you for teaching me something new today. Ooh. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, well, yeah. And you know, um, when we look at these creatures, I, I personally really creatures, dear God, when we look at these women who have been turned into these, these fembots, um, there's something really interesting that they do. Everybody kind of knows that this film is about robotics and that has to do with the poster that has to do with the fact that it came out, you know, uh, in the early 70s, um, mm -hmm. you know, and again, it has become like kind of this cultural staple and very much so in the 2000s version. So probably when people think of images of this film, this is what they're thinking of is the trailer from that film. Um, they, they really did, like you say, they really upped the, the kind of cutesiness of the robotics. They very much so created that like 1950s atomic kind of feel. And that's what they were really much running. Much campier. With. Much campier. Correct. Um, and you know, in that camp, it turns it into a different, you know, type of, of science fiction film. Whereas this one in a very traditional horror film fashion, we don't necessarily see, you know, a robotics face. We don't necessarily see, you know, what it is that makes these women so strange until the very end. And so what is particularly frightening, uh, at least for me, the moment that uh, Joanna stabs Bobby or the moment mm -hmm. at the beginning where we just, when you start to see these little malfunctions and it's all the actors, it's what the actors are doing in order to show you exactly what kind of robot that we're dealing with. And I love mm -hmm. that it is this notion of an automaton as compared to an AI, because it very much so is just something that has been built to be played with. It is something that has been built to be fixed. It is something that, you know, again, it's that Disney notion. And there's something satisfying yeah. about it being that simple. There's not a brain in that head, because I think some of the, the terror that really comes from this film uh, with with this type of structured folk horror, normally, again, it's about, well, is that guy, we either know from the beginning that guy's going in a wicker man, can the next hour and a half make me forget that by the time that we get there? Uh, or it is, will they escape the wicker man? In this film, you really do, you know, again, if you don't know the ending, um, you know, it, it really is like a journey to see if Joanna can escape all of this. And she gets so tantalizingly close at some points and then just watching that get ripped away. I mean, when she and Bobby are kind of house hunting and, and then all of a sudden, you know, Bobby goes away for a weekend and, and is different. Oh, yeah. And just this notion of, again, like what we're getting is something, it's a complete replacement and it's brainless. It is absolutely, there is not a trace of you because you, and as shown kind of by the end of this film and that, that, I know we all remember the final gorgeous iconic image in the grocery store, but for me, I think it's always going to be this woman with, you know, just bigger boobs, exactly the same, bigger <laughs> boobs. And she is about to strangle you with a pair of pantyhose. Like that is, that's horrifying. Cause it really, it's not even like they're putting these women on ice and like storing their brains, anything like that. It's just, they straight up kill you and replace you. This isn't pod people. The, this isn't, yeah. The fact, that, the fact that it's her double that does it in this, where it's like the, the version of you that they have created is what will kill the person of you. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so fabulous with the, the long hair. She's She's just silky brushing it and then turns around and she has no eyes as Black well. Eyes. Um, yeah. Just because that's the last part that they have to get right. You know, like they just, they, they have to get the eyes down. And, and as you mentioned it, like that, it's all the acting with the very subtle, you know, if these are, if these are Disney animatronics of the seventies, yeah. Um, with no real unbelievable traits to them. Not like the Spider-Man that they can throw off a building now at, at a, a Avengers yeah, campus or this whatever. this is Abraham um, Lincoln. <laughs> but, yeah, he has, they have a set track of actions and things that they are programmed. And unlike the generative AI problem right now, which, which will eventually feed on itself like a horrifying Ouroboros, but there's a finite knowledge to what these Stepford wives are capable of. And, and that's by design. You know, there isn't, a desire for learning and growth. They can't incorporate the the vocabulary that they haven't already pre-recorded. Um, you get a lot of that horror from the 
innocuous repetition. You know, when we have the car accident, she's like, it's so silly. It's just my head. Oh, it's but that's so silly. silly. It's it was my just head. my yeah. head. Oh my god. Or goodness. at the party when she's like, I'd just kill for this recipe. And like she that's all she can say. Um going around just, all the different people and doing it too. That's that was yeah. gorgeous. Because if you didn't see what she was doing, it would seem completely natural until you realize that she this is the only thing she knows how to say. It's it's these small yeah. moments that really just unsettle you. <laughs> and then you get the beautiful, I love the the trying to remount the women's association and oh. you've got um oh shoot what's her name charmaine char char something charmaine. Um, yeah and she's you know they're talking about real problems and like being tired of their husbands and whatever is going on and then when the the women the the, the robots all latch onto the idea of their favorite cleaning supplies um that also comes up in in um in the novel but also uh in some of the uh, feminist literature, especially uh, Betty Friedan's, you know, the feminine mystique, that was second wave feminism. So, you know, we've got our yeah. suffrage rights now, um, but we're we're talking about women in the home and the and the additional kind of societal power we have. And it's also very important to note that the feminine mystique largely left out working class women, women of color. Um, obviously, there was no discussion of of queer women uh, and those dynamics. But one of the things that she said of a typical American housewives was that there was this kind of belief that they had power in choosing how to take care of the home, the branding, going back to the capitalism of it all, the, the brand of soap you chose to use. That was what, that, that was the power you had in your home. You had the power as a woman to choose the best products to take care of your kids and your husband and clean the floors and clean the dishes. And so like, the brand name was so important because it it gave, and I don't want to say it didn't give them power, but it was also this illusion that the choice was more important than it was, especially if you've got companies where, you know, they it's nowadays everything is, you know, super corporations and you have your choice at the grocery store. But even if you go with brand A versus brand B, turns out they're owned by conglomerate C. And so it's just this illusion of choice. But um, that, you know, the, the, the pseudo control of the home was very important uh, in the feminine mystique with that idea of like, this is the power a woman has over her domain, even though it ultimately serves everybody but herself. Oh, and you know, that folds in so nicely again with the notions of, of the cul-de-sac, because when we're talking about an isolated landscape in folk horror and kind of how, what does that look like here in, in the seventies in America, in the sixties and seventies in America. And it very much so was this notion of, you move after your your whole life, you know, whatever you were doing before you became a wife and mother, it stops the minute you move to the suburbs. It stops mm -hmm. the minute that your your whole world is based around not an apartment, but a house. And taking care of that house, filling that house with children, filling that house with joy, filling that house with you know, Christmas, <laughs> you know, yeah. here in the context of the holidays. But but again, it, it is this notion of, you know, what at what point in time does that mundanity become something that skews everything around you, be that your, you know, religion, in this case, the, the religion of capitalism, you know, what can I buy that's going to be the best? You know, uh, okay. it's all still in there, the rural setting, isolation, uh, uh, religion, superstition kind of becomes paranoia in the context of, you know, calling the environmental agencies, there's something in the water. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's very American and still a very big problem today. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, the amount of like, I, the minute that I realized that also Levin did boys from Brazil, I was like, Oh, I bet he didn't think Nazis would be as big of an issue as they are today as well. <laughs> like, it's just, oh, I know, right. But but it really is interesting how this film encapsulates so many of these very modern problems and so many of these things that just, no matter how hard we think we have strived away from them, no matter what wave of feminism we're on, no matter what wave of, of you know, protest we're on, all of this mm -hmm. still is very much so baked into American culture. And it rears its ugly head at the strangest times and in the strangest ways. <laughs> you know, and now we've put it into the body of a machine. <laughs> so, 
and it's it's such effective horror all without really a drop of blood because i mean i even when when bobby bobby's double gets stabbed it's so inhuman and clean the way she slides the knife back out of herself it's more terrifying uh, than it's just yeah <laughs> and, then, and then we end on this you know this notion that the first black family has moved to stepford and we don't get that continuation and i do you know i do wish and, I, and maybe i maybe i'm just not aware of it but the the conversation whether it was levin or frieden uh, just the societal conversation of the black family and then uh, with the the nicole kidman movie there's i know that there's queer characters and so we have a stepford husband but it's what context does this narrative take on when it evolves in those ways and unfortunately you know this this film and the novel don't necessarily answer that but i do think it again shows the incredible uh you know uh potential of all the different ways that this can go in and it comes down again to that that idea where he's like wouldn't you do this to men if you could it's like I don't I don't know necessarily you know there's always there's always this notion of the oppressor and the oppressee um or the oppressed you know oh the fear is that the oppressed is going to do the exact same thing to the oppressor and that's bad and that's not that people get scared of equality and equity because they're like oh well if if the shoe was on the other foot you'd turn right around and turn me into a sex robot you know Oh, exactly. Well, and I love that you brought it up in the context of, you know, at the very end, we do see Stepford's first black family, because throughout the film, they very much so do portray this notion of here, here's a bunch of white women trying to bring second wave feminism to a small town in Connecticut. Uh, you know, there's a scene with the uh, uh, one of the town greeters, who's an elderly woman, who very much so it's it's everything is said, but I'm not racist, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, a lot of that really does get played by the time this episode actually airs. Um, it will be February. It will be Black History Month. And so I know that this film is the, the first of our kind of Valentine's stuff. Uh, the next one that we're going to be talking about is Candyman in regards to Call the Scott. Oh, wow. oh what a choice. I know. But that's just it. That when we're kind of talking about how horror evolves. I, I love that that you brought that up and uh, you know we can use this to kind of talk about you know this is what's kind of coming next year at folksy because it, this stuff does evolve this stuff does remain relevant even though it is considered the past you know what we look at as the past might not be how another culture looks at the past um in the past for us you know we can still exist in the time of the past in this way you know because we and do it's... have such a strong sense of nostalgia yeah and when engaging with these materials then it, it taking it the extra step further is is going and looking at who was left out of the conversation and yeah. so again you know gender identity it's very much focused on the middle class suburban white woman and while there are trappings of patriarchy and capitalism and and things that do affect ostensibly a lot of people within this uh this system of government and running a country and all of that um, it, it is important again to look at at who was left out of the conversation and making sure that you don't unilaterally apply this to everybody then this this suburb this suburb doesn't necessarily represent all of America and so then it is important to then look at those other contexts and so you know you're gonna you're gonna take it to Cabrini Green with yeah. Candyman and, and look at that folklore um, oh, and yeah. urban legends and stuff like that as well it, absolutely. America is such a huge country that our folklore has really become something very powerfully interesting, uh, which is part of the reason why I started this podcast, because don't get me wrong, I love Gatiss, I love the definitive Holy Trinity, but, you know, folk horror really does deserve to be looked at beyond the context of, is everybody wearing a white dress? Is there a flower crown? Is there something <laughs> large? That we're gonna burn by the end of this film, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't think we we mentioned it explicitly, but if if we did, then you're getting a double dose. But this is specifically set in Connecticut. Like Stepford is supposed to be yeah. in Connecticut, so we're off yeah. on the kind of more eastern seaboard of the United States in that that kind of region. Oh yeah, again, it's it's rich women with white hats and white dresses, and say they all say hi to each other at the grocery store. Good to see you. See you again soon. And I do work. really like in the grocery store, just on that last note that, and it's such a beautiful and horrifying because you're watching all the women going up and down the aisles. And some of them are in like almost crop top type summery dresses. And I'm like, in the world, like I would be cold in the freezer section. Um, oh. And you're waiting and waiting for the, the shoe to drop with 
with what is what is Joanna's double? Dress that like dips down um, to the and like a bus line that dips down to the navel. I know exactly the dress right? you're talking about. <laughs> but the moment that I love before we get that gut wrenching, like watching Joanna and just watching oh. her eyes as well, like mm -hmm. frame up to the camera, we see that the the black husband and wife are shopping together. You know, yeah. and I think that's an important part again because what we'll see, and I and I even think that. I, maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought Walter was at the grocery store when the car accident happened as well. But yes, this yes. idea of how soon will the men's association separate him from his wife? Yeah, um, I, and that, that is what the film leaves me on where I'm like, they are they are equals as far as we can tell. They are having a discussion probably about what to purchase. You know, again, that choosing the power over your domestic domain um, but it but it does leave you with that sense with how long until she's gliding through the aisles by herself in a, in oh, a perky yeah. little summery outfit. How long will it last? And with all of that, you know, again, I, I always like to think um, of the older woman because I always wondered if she was a robot or not. It does kind of become the question of is she going to be gliding alone? You know, will, yeah. will these women even say hi? It's there's so much yes. that's, that's left open and it's so so beautiful uh, and it, again iconic you know this scene has been yes. recreated in in so many different other horror settings because it is mm -hmm. just so insanely gorgeous and and oh. iconic well amy what do you say does this film qualify as a folk horror film would you put it inside of a wicker man as a sacrifice to greater movie gods I would, but if I put a robot inside of a wicker man, would you get left with some horrifying, you know, Disney-esque malfunction, you know, when the Maleficent dragon caught on fire and that went viral? <laughs> See, I imagine uh, the robot in Rebel Moon. <laughs> I think okay, you get that. Okay. <laughs> I think you get a robot in a, in a antler crown who I want to know what his deal is. <laughs> Ooh, and then we're getting into Yellow Jackets territory, which has been my recent obsession, but oh, uh, yum, that's, yum, that's yum. a whole other episode. <laughs> Good Lord, boy, howdy, ain't you right? As the final thought, as you mentioned also the old woman and whether or not she was a robot, one of yeah. one of the last pieces I used in my thesis that I would love to recommend if people can find it, and I, I believe it's available online, there's a Ooh. really great short story called Helen O'Loy, and it's her last name is, is, is a play on alloy, where two men make a robot and one of them eventually falls in love with her, uh, but he gets older and the robot doesn't. And so the robot eventually asks the other uh, inventor who also was secretly in love with her big shock uh, to age her cosmetically so that her husband never quite realizes that she's not real anymore. Uh, and I think that is a fascinating little, little story as well as we see who's left out of the conversation, the, the not traditionally young, beautiful women. Um, and I, oh. and I apologize. I don't remember the, um, the author's name, but Helen O'Loy uh, is oh it's it's Lester Del Rey so it's a it's a short story by Lester Del Rey is Helen O'Loy um, and that's from the thirties Lester Del Rey thank you so much for such an amazing recommendation that sounds incredible yes. um, well so again that way people are able to find both you and the things that you work on where can people find you on social media Amy well um, on social media whoa uh, you know talk about everything going insane with the uh, with algorithms and and whatnot. On uh, <laughs> X, formerly known as Twitter, I'm still plugging along at at if she be worthy, like uh, Thor reference. But for the majority of my updates, I do have a website, and that is amythunderjam.com. Uh, and that's where I collect my comics, my prose. I will throw my thesis up there if I can find the link to it still. Um, I've got incoming tarot decks. I have, uh, you know, you'll see information about that Ravenloft. Uh, book and then I did just start a newsletter there which is linked to from the website but that's it's Amy Thunderjam on uh, Substack as well but amythunderjam.com that's kind of my one-stop shop well and for all of my listeners out there I do highly recommend you follow Amy she's just such an interesting individual and all of the stuff that you work on is so cool is there actually a way to pre-order Ravenloft or any of your other upcoming projects right now yes so um definitely with uh with Ravenloft and with Pop's Chocolate Shop Fresh Meat, those are both available for pre-order currently at a local comic book store. Um, so if if you have a local comic book store or you maybe shop online with Midtown or Golden Apple Comics, um, those are available for pre-order right now. They are before their uh, final cutoff date, and I think that will still be the case for February. Um, so if you listen to this, then you should be able to get that. Um, 
ArchieComics.com will eventually have a direct pre-order link for Pops as well, if it's not already up there. And uh, I, I'm not sure about IDW uh, Ravenloft, but again, yeah, local comic store or online comics retailers, please don't pirate this stuff, uh, you know. Yeah. We're talking about the disembodiment <laughs> of our artwork, but um, yeah, pre-orders will be important for that. Um, and Ravenloft is 80 pages. Like that's Dang. that one is exceptionally fun. It's got an entire uh, segment dedicated to the folk horror domain of dread called Tepest, where a hag gets to control who does and does not have permission to have children. Oh. Uh, so we get to do a story in that domain as well as uh, several other notables uh, from from the official Dungeons and Dragons manuals. I am so, so stoked. Oh my God, this is going to be great. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us here today. And for all y'all at home, get to your local comic book store, check out Amy Chase's stuff. And until next time, stay folksy. Thanks for having me.